Hello, and welcome to this episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. I am Katherine Troyer, and I am joined, as always, by Tony Cheska. Hey there! This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our discussion of 2011's prequel, The Thing. I had seen this film before. I know you had not, but I had not seen it prior to seeing the 1950s film and prior mm-hmm. to reading the novella. And I feel like my thoughts on this film have changed if I put it in the bigger conversation, right? If I just oh, put it up against the 1982 film, I think it's just kind of a, you know, a poor substitute. But if it's in conversation with the existing sort of texts, then it becomes more interesting to me. And I liked it better upon this second viewing. You said you you liked it. I said I liked it. I know that <laughs> I knew that I do, as people know, I do kind of research into the production and reception of films. So I know that most of you all out there, or at least in its time, this film was not very well regarded. But I in I think perhaps it has something to do with how I came to this film, as you just mentioned. Yeah. I came to it after having seen the first, the 50s version, and then the 82 version, and now this. And so I think I'm used to kind of the thing from the 80s is not this thing I put on like this pedestal yet. I mean, I really liked it. And so it may become this like sacred text to me over time. But like, when I was just viewing it, like we recorded this at these episodes just like a couple of weeks apart, like it's not enough time for it to elevate to that status in my mind. So I kind of came into this one as, and I was kind of interested in, I was like, it's a prequel. I'm glad it's not a remake. I'm glad they're not attempting to just be like, we can do it better than John Carpenter because, I mean, people have tried. Yeah. (laughs) And rarely, if ever, succeeded. Yeah, I think you're right that having it be a prequel allows it to be in conversation as opposed to as many remakes are trying to do, right? Erase the the past or or like in worse and like utter juxtaposition like yeah the nightmare on elm street remake positioning itself as like the anti-80s nightmare (laughs) on elm street confusingly you're like why would you do that this doesn't attempt to do it like the no no the, the producing team on this was like when talking about their choice to make the prequel they were just like yeah we understand that trying to remake the John Carpenter version would be like drawing a mustache on the Mona Lisa and kind of passing it off as our own. Yeah. I don't know who that was shade to specifically, but (laughs) that's... (laughs) Yeah. And you said something really interesting, I think, was after we had finished recording the episode on either The Thing or our last episode on the Friday the 13th franchise, but it was after the mics had turned off. And you said that like, we have to think about this film as an upstart in the same way that the 1982 film was considered an upstart from the 50s, right? Like, it's Mm. not like the 1982 film was saying, hey, we're going to take and be super faithful to to this other film. So 
they're all doing their own spin on this conversation about this really unfortunate trip to Antarctica. So yeah, would you give us a, a brief summary of, of what's happening in the 2011 version of The Thing? For sure. So for those of you who have seen the 1982 version, maybe you're wondering, what happened in that Norwegian camp that they briefly discuss in The Thing? Right. I'm sure that's like what you probably been kept up at night thinking about and that's what these filmmakers are seeking to explore and we follow this team of explorationers who discover this alien creature who can copy the cells and replicate the cells imitate people and take over and the first two acts kind of keep up the same paranoia sense from the 1982 thing, and then the third act kind of descends into sci-fi, alien-y, mumbo-jumbo, but yes. it's kind of fun. Yeah, <laughs> and, it is kind of fun. And that's the thing, the 2011 version, it doesn't attempt to cancel or uh, redo any of the events from the 82 ver film, or I guess the 50s version. Whichever, maybe there are purists out there who are like, I don't like the 82 version. That Only the one from the 50s for me. That is but true. it doesn't They're cancel that version be. either. You can watch this no. one and then that too. <laughs> and in fact, the very last scene of the 2011 film is setting up for the very first scene of the 82 film, right? Where we have the helicopter chasing the dog. And of course, watching the 82 film, you're like, what did that dog possibly do to these monsters? And then, of course, we have that background. So I'm glad that you described the third act the way you did, because I do think that that's where I started to have some problems. And that also brings in my scholarship that I want to talk about today. Brilliant. Because there's not, unsurprisingly... viewers, yeah, I know. an yes. unplanned segue. Amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Isn't it, though? So there's really, unsurprisingly, very little uh, scholarship on the thing 2011. In huh. fact, I'm not sure there's really any... Certainly there wasn't in my very quick slash multiple Google searches. So that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. If you're listening to this podcast and you're like, but I wrote the thing on the, the 2011 the thing, you should definitely send us an email and let me know. But unsurprisingly, I think because the film wasn't sort of critical, a darling, um, and maybe not even a fan <laughs> darling, just not much has been written about the film. But what I did want to talk about, and, and it's going to sound like a little bit of a departure at first, but I think it's very relevant, comes from a book edited by Terrence McSweeney called American Cinema in the Shadow of, of September 11, of 9-11. And this particular chapter that I want to talk about was written by James Kendrick, and it's called The Terrible, Horrible Desire to Know, Post-9-11 Horror Remakes, Reboots, Sequels, and prequels. So sort of anything and everything that got made post 9-11. And if you've listened to our podcast before, we've talked about this a little bit, that there's definitely a shift in American horror post 9-11. That really shouldn't be a surprise because like our entire sense of ourselves and the world shifted after the events of 9-11. And so horror accordingly also shifted to really think about and explore new things. And it was during this period that there were a lot of remakes and reboots, right? The mm -hmm. early 2000s just had everything that could possibly be done. However, what I wanted to talk about specifically was what 
Kendrick is arguing these post 9-11 horror films are doing as they are reworking films from the 70s and 80s. So what Kendrick argues is, he says, an intriguing aspect to these films, these post 9-11 reboots, remakes, sequels, prequels, is their incessant desire to explain. While many horror films of the 70s and 80s were content with ambiguity and mystery, especially as it pertained to their depictions of monstrosity and evil, post-9-11 horror, despite its despair, and sometimes outright nihilism, is frequently consumed with showing us how and why. And I think for me, that right there in a nutshell articulates that the ultimate problem that I have with the 2011 film, other than the fact that we should just always rely on practical effects, period, the end. But in addition mm-hmm. to just CGI things that I could have been practical effects, I think my biggest concern about this film was really that it's, it's tries so gosh darn hard to make sure we have all these answers. Yeah. But this is the thing that's most terrifying about all of the iterations of the thing so far is that they're not letting us sit comfortably with answers, particularly the 82 film, right? Yeah. Where we don't even know at the end who is, if anyone, uh, still human. And again, to the 2011 film's credit, it does do a lot more of that, even, I think, up to the final moment when um, Mary Elizabeth Weinstead's character... Yes, I can't Kate remember Lloyd. her name. Okay. Mary, uh, right up to the final moments when Mary Elizabeth Weinstead's character, Kate, kind of torches her companion... And I think even in there, there's a little bit of ambiguity because everything that she is speculating on is just like, it's based even on the end, that that thing about the earring that she mentions. Does she remember that? She doesn't allow him to go to the other side. See, I I wanted that, to have that moment of ambiguity, but that sound that they add that he's making when he's on fire, to I guess me, that's fair. eliminates the ambiguity. Because I got really excited. I was like, ooh, what if it's, you know, um, going to be that she, we're never yeah. going to know. And I, that's and then true. he that's starts true. making that thing sound. And so I think you're right, though, that like it tr- it's trying. It's like it's wanting to do that. It just can't commit. I, I guess it can't help but feel like a nod to it rather than a full, like, proper execution of it, particularly yes. given the context of everything. I get, we've just jumped all the way to the third act. Wow. Yeah, we did. <laughs> it's it okay. Up. We'll go back. We'll, we'll go, go back. back. We'll go back, listeners. But yeah, I particularly after the context of Kate having just basically like being privy to this entire alien spaceship and like kind of just like learning the answers of like, oh, this is what it looks like in its final form. Oh, oh okay. She can kind of defeat it here, but it'll obviously go on to the next camp. Yeah, I think the moment that they go to to the spacecraft is the moment that it it really loses its ability to remember it, what makes it a terrifying film. Because it's after that that we do have, like you said, the scene with Carter, which would be really, really amazing if it wasn't for the fact that it adds this diegetic sound that, that implies that he was a, a thing. And of course, I think like if you read a lot of the plot descriptions, there's no ambiguity there, right? It just describes him as the Carter thing. Whereas in the 82 film, by the end, we don't know if either of the two remaining characters, they could both be human. One of them could be human. Neither of them could be human. And there's no, like, nothing, despite fans' really intense, like, reading of, of, you know, the breath in the air and things like that. There's nothing to indicate which way it is. And so even if you choose to read it with ambiguity, they have embedded that 
thing, right, for you to be able to interpret. Yeah. And it's until that final act I that I think this film manages to really be strong because it's until that final act that we're having so, the suspicion and paranoia that makes this story interesting. The The genuine sort of tension of what would you do if you found an alien mm-hmm. and, and you know you've changed life forever, but also it's really dangerous, right? Like all of that's in there. It's definitely incorporating a lot more elements of the 19, what sounded like from the 1938 novella that like scientific, yes. the importance of scientific exploration and how significant this finding was going to be at the expense of human life that, and that was like, there were direct parallels to that in conversation between yes. the doctor and this and a lot of the others and the Norwegians that they were interacting with. This film to me felt more connected to the fifties and to the, to the fifties film and to the novella because of, like you said, the sense of community. Mm-hmm. And some of that I think is the presence of having female characters in it. So that's yeah. mimicking certainly not the thirties version, but the fifties version. As we started this film, my partner told me that apparently Australia did this investigation on its Antarctic and other Antarctic dynamics of the people that go up there, particularly when it comes to gender. And and apparently it's just rampant, not just ranging from sexism to, you know, aggressive behavior towards women to sexual assault. Like they were astonished by how explicit and rampant it is in the Antarctic sort of exploring communities in those little like villages where there's one woman to maybe a whole bunch of men. And even though we didn't see, of course, any sexual assault or anything like that, because that's not what this film was interested in doing, it did provide for us that tension of Kate being not the only woman, but the woman who's been brought there to be a voice of authority by Dr. Sander. And then he just ignores her, right? And he keeps, he never calls her hysterical, but he might as well, right? And I thought that was a really lovely addition to this conversation of what happens when you're the outsider, but you have the knowledge that people need. I definitely think that, I I really liked Mary Elizabeth Weinstead in this movie. I thought that her performance really added something. She said that in interviews, in kind of, in order to make this character distinct from, and not get a lot of direct comparisons to Kurt Russell from the 82 version, they kind of modeled this character after Ripley from the Alien films, and I think that, that makes really sense. shows. I think that really comes through with her performance, and I mean that in the best way possible. I don't think that it's a Absolutely. direct parallel. I don't think that it's a ripoff of it, but I think that there are enough of that, like, kind of inquisitive, out. she's the outsider in this kind of ship, in this male-dominated environment. She is inquisitive. She clearly has some sense of the space when others don't, which I think yes. is very done she handles very well but also i think that what how she differs from ripley is she doesn't have that same immediate ripping authority that kind of ripley does yes which she kind of underplays it she's taking a different tactic there it's a it's a little bit more it's i don't nuance not to say that rip that ripley's performance isn't right but it it, it's forced to be because the dynamics are more and i do mean this pun intentionally cool oh my gosh <laughs> cold <laughs> no you're very correct though right ripley's character is like second in command and she's the safety officer and, and her job is to be listened to whereas kate 
is being brought in as an American. So she doesn't even speak to, she can't even speak everyone's language. Like she has to communicate in other ways with Lars, one of my favorite characters. And even though Dr. Sander Halverson brings her explicitly to be the expert, you know, he immediately pulls her aside and he's like, don't you ever contradict me again, little lady. Uh, And, you know, in front of, in front of the men. And it's like, why did you bring me? You know, what, what is my point if, if it's to just nod? And so what's interesting about her is that even though the men, and by men, I do really mean particularly Sander, Sand, tries yeah, really doctor. hard, yeah, to cast doubt on her. So there's that scene where he's talking to the other Norwegians in, in Norwegian and says, you know, we shouldn't trust her. You know, she's, what does she even know? What is she talking about? But Kate is the only one that consistently uses science to make smart decisions, right? She's like, I don't think we should drill yet until we've followed protocol call. I have an idea for how we can quickly check and make sure. And there's a scene that's actually almost explicitly like Alien, where she's like, I don't think we should let them in. (laughs) And they're like, hush, little lady. And they do. And it just... So that's mm-hmm. interesting that you said that because there was a moment in the film I was like, there's a lesson here about not letting people in and listening to the voice of reason. Yeah. So I think that's interesting that you kind of picked up on that. I was a yeah. fascinating tidbit that I that I learned from the research process about that performance in it. Yeah, I think that I like this. I like the cast overall. It kind mm-hmm. of scared me at first when uh, the thing was kind of rustling. And they uh, they sent Derek, who was the one black character, to start oh, looking yes. at it. I was like, no, 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 please yeah. don't. Yeah. I was like, it's 2011. We can't have this trope happen. Just unexamined. But then it didn't. It was like, I, I was, it was a, I don't know if that was an intentional subversion or if it's just like my knowledge of the horror genre is rotting my brain. <laughs> That's a good question. I, I also had a similar thought that I was like, oh my gosh. Of course, this is what's happening. And then, like you said, uh, he doesn't die for quite some time, although he, of course, doesn't make it because really at the end, hardly anyone makes yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't fault the filmmakers for that. I mean, yeah. like everybody, pretty much everybody dies, like you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only ones that are, are left are Kate and Lars, really, right? And then the quote dog. But but you're right that it, it does manage to to do some, some, I think, nice things with our casting. I appreciated in this because i think this mirrored the 1950s film more than the 82 film so in the 82 film from the start and it makes sense they were trying to make us like understand that being in the the arctic you know being in antarctica in a station for months at a time is no picnic right like you're going to have cabin fever and you're going to be a little stir crazy but in the 50s film there's also a sense of camaraderie and like connection between them that I thought this film did a good job of doing when they're all singing and like celebrating. And and I thought that the this film offered something that the 82 film didn't have the ability to offer if it was going to maintain its sense of isolation. And that was is that we did see them as a group and we did. And then we got to see the group splinter into smaller groups. But I, I thought it was valuable for us to see just a bigger cast in some ways at work here. Yeah. And I also really liked another thing that the, I don't remember being really present in any of the other versions is this like isolation that does come even in community from language divisions which i thought was actually kind of fascinating 
to unfold and was terrifying in a way that I was like, I guess until this film, I was like, oh, I didn't know. I hadn't really thought about that. But in these kind of like intense situations, yeah, it would be pretty terrifying if yeah. if we couldn't all communicate and formulate one cohesive plan and had to go through this like telephone translator. Yes, yes. It would be a really, really interesting film. I don't think it'd be one that many people would enjoy, but that's okay. If there was an entire film that was like, okay, Kate goes to the Antarctic and no one speaks English and they don't translate, they don't provide closed captioning translations for any of the non-English conversations. So we, the English audience is like, you're denied it on purpose so that you have to like Kate and have an entire experience, an entire situation, right? Where you don't understand any of the dialogue that's happening. I wonder if it would be too complicated or how you would do it, but would you then translate that language into every around the world or would you be... So, so the only language that you get access to is the one. would be, is Kate's. So... I don't That's, know if that yeah. means that you'd have to pick a non-existent language, right? Like make something up. And so they're just speaking fake stuff or have that a different language for that one group of people, right? But I think that'd be interesting. That's super interesting. And I think it would be a, a really cool way to explore one. Just one of the cool things that was in this film. Yeah. What did you think about the cold opening? It does have a cold opening. Cold it does have a cold opening. in the opening. most literal sense <laughs> of the word. So one of the challenges that this film has, and it is an, a not insignificant challenge, is that not only is the 1982 film beloved, but the 1982 film has some images, some scenes that are visually iconic. And okay. one of them, of course, is the opening scene of the 82 film where we have the helicopter and we get to see the cold expanses of Antarctica. And I think it was really important that they put us out there again. I I, I, I think agree. that. I I, I thought in your conversation that you had mentioned where you are or you were talking about how one of the things you enjoyed that bringing over from the 50s that they couldn't capture from the 82 version was that element of community. And I was like, and what I was immediately kind of thought of was that except for in that opening scene, which does kind of like you're like you were just mentioning, really kind of tie back into that sense of how horrifying it would be to have something go wrong out on that yes. abyss. Yes, yes. And we need that reminder really early on that they are on their own, right? That they are on a a landscape that is as alien as it can get without actually being extraterrestrial. And then I like that even when they crack the ice, like you're not 100% sure if they've hit anything supernatural or if this yes. is just a, a nap like a naturally occurring ice break that they have like yes. that they are going to die from and either way it's like pretty terrifying and then leads into that logo of the thing that just comes out of it out of the ground we humans are so soft and squishy and i think that that this film reminds us that we do a lot of things that we should not be surprised when the outcomes involve death right like even excluding alien life forms Antarctica is not a place to mess with. And and there's a, that line in there about the one guy who had to go all the way down to Argentina to be able to, you know, have his bone replaced, right, when they find the titanium plate. And it just reminds you that this this is a very 
isolating stuff. So I think you're right that that did a lot, managed to do a lot for the film and setting up some of the things that we were going to see later, as well as giving us, I think, that that shot we need of, of just the beautiful, but also terrifyingness that is this landscape. There were other scenes, right, that we get to see that are pretty much as close to visual replicas as possible, including when they're all gathered outside in the snow at night. Uh, and they're all like standing in front of the fire. That's not a happy fire. And and I thought that was really good. I also actually was pleased by their solution to have a scene that mimicked the blood scene in the 82 film with the dental fillings. Like, and I also like that their first thought was the blood as well. Mm -hmm. But then there was too much paranoia in that process yes. that they have to switch to something else. Which is and the lab exploded, right? Or the lab right. caught on fire. Well, I guess yeah, I guess that too. I guess the but that <laughs> right, but the lab caught on fire, and so there's so much paranoia that I don't think it even occurred to them to try to do it a second time, right? Yeah, and so then they immediately are there, or they're like there's so much paranoia they need that immediate answer right there. They can't yes. even they can't wait. And at this point, it's like, would people even cooperate with having their blood drawn by some yes. members of the uh, of the scientists? partying at this point so yeah it's a and what's great about the dental fillings is that not everyone's going to have silver fillings right and they talk about that right they're like i just so i i get to be you know scared you get to be scared of me because i have good dental hygiene you know so i think it was a good way for us to have like it's not an absolute solution it's just a partial one and i i think i would have been excited if they would have dwelt there a little bit I think that that's about the point where this film was like, mm-hmm. we should probably be an action science fiction horror film. So let's make sure that we have some more action instead of even for five minutes, us having to dwell in just the horror that is uncertainty. And we didn't have that. And that's why I think that goes back to what Kendrick was saying about, you know, we need the how and the why, because at some point post 9-11, we're just still, even in 2011, even 10 years after the fact, we're still not in a position to feel comfortable with that ambiguity, with ambiguity that we felt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So there's a moment where they, after the dental fillings, after the Ju- Juliet becomes the thing, and then Lars kills that version of the thing, and they say they're going to quarantine. But that's, I think, that's the moment that the, the film sort of shifted for me. Because we should have sat in that quarantine for a little bit and been really uncomfortable. Also, a ch- a trend of these like horror movies is that they are also now un- all under two. There were a lot of them trying to be under two hours at this point. Yes, and yes. this is, this film is one. It's one example where I I do think its briskness works against it in a way that is unintentional. I think that if like and you're hitting on it, I don't think I had like crystallized that as being the exact point or those moments as being points where they needed more time to breathe. But by the time we had kind of moved into the third act and like that, it was just descended into full sci-fi action mode. Yeah. I was like, ah, something. I, I we didn't quite get enough time with these characters. I because I was like, they're the best moments of the movie were de- are definitely the moments of them just trying to figure it out, thinking out loud and arguing with each other when they are contained. And these are again not super original moments, like. This, this is what the novella is on. This is the 50s version. This is the 80s version. But they're such good, interesting encapsulations of terror that yes. they, they still work in this. 
And I think if you, like, if you were, like, as you were mentioning, if they had just given them some more time to breathe, honestly, maybe even the, the kind of over-the-top sci-fi-ness of the third act wouldn't have been as jarring. Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. Because the speed at which this film moves, and, and I think you're right, felt the need to move, means that I'm not sure, even though I did not always know who had been thinged, I was never surprised because I'd never had that moment to like build suspense. There is one brief moment in the helicopter where you assume that Olaf is the one who's going to thing out because he's sick, right? And then it ends up being the guy across from him. Yeah. But even that, because they're trying to move so fast through the beats, it was like, oh, okay, I guess he's the thing. <laughs> and I don't know, you know, honestly, I think it could have done with a different third act. I don't think I needed to go to the spacecraft. Certainly not this like super long, you know, we get to watch the slow-mo running and, you know, like I, there was there was way too much time there that if if it, the film could only stay at 103 minutes, I think needed to be allocated elsewhere. Like with this conversation between Kate and Carter, because if we had seen their connection a little bit more if we'd seen them talking a little bit more. And I'm really glad that there was no love interest because not every woman has to have a man. But even if Kate and Carter had been like better friends, it would have made that last moment much more devastating. Yeah, I think so. Mary Elizabeth Weinstein just has this habit of like starring in movies that are incredible in the first two acts and then the third acts fall apart. I'm thinking of it in the horror genre specifically. I'm really thinking of Ken Cloverfield Lane, which... Oh, yeah. I feel is honestly utterly identical in the terms of, like, its problems to this film. Yes, um, it is. Because the first two acts are such a beautiful... Oh, amazing. And, like, a John Goodman is, like, giving the performance... Oh, he's terrifying. I, we should maybe talk about this movie in more we detail should. someday. Because I, I... And the first... And the film that it's based off that I've actually never seen. <laughs> I've only seen this one. The <laughs> 10 Cloverfield Lane. But the third act just goes off the rails and it's utter sci-fi, explainy, see everything on this alien nonsense that the first two acts gestured at, but didn't feel a need to confirm. And then I think I think this film does something very similar. And I think it's funny that she's the lead in both. Yeah, I I understand as a filmmaker that if you've taken all this time to craft this really cool alien species that you're going to want to show it at some point. But I think that filmmakers should nine out of 10 times resist that urge because you're absolutely correct. That's where 10 Cloverfield Lane was like, hey, but what if we just now made sure to show you some um, some excellent CGI work? And that's where we lose it, right? Yeah. And it's interesting. I think that the producers of this had a little bit more effect on another remake, sequel, prequel thing that they worked on, <laughs> Dawn of the Dead. Yes. Which... They had worked on before this, which I quite like, and we should also maybe talk. We should. We've never done either of the Dons or Sean, right? Or did or we do Sean? We'll have to. Somebody go can go back and look. Yeah, it probably that's, will that's be, embarrassing. We'll go back and look at. I but don't if, think. But we that have. should be our next. That should be our next sort of like vignette. I We've totally heard it agree. Here first, <laughs> those those films were pretty significant and influential. I the first the, the remake actually explicitly was. That final scene and the ambiguity from that on the as they leave yes. was terrifying to me uh, as a as a kid. So they, these producers have some experience with taking with like treating classic horror films with like some reverence. 
which yes. I think definitely helps this 2011. Although it wasn't received, I guess it didn't help it get received well at the yeah. time, though. So, but I, I guess in my humble opinion, I think that that is why it at least feels reverence to the novella, the yes. 50s film, and the 82 film, while trying to do some some of its own things and bring in some new diversity. Yeah, so it didn't recap it. It didn't make up its its budget, right? Like oh, it, it did oh not. my god! Yeah, its no. its budget was like thirty eight. Its box office was like thirty one million. But I think you're right that what makes this film now, at least, worth continuing to talk about is that it is making sure to stay a part of the conversation, right? It's it's just saying we want to contribute to the conversation, not just eliminate it or, like you said, maybe even stop the old conversation and start a, a new one. I do want to take a minute, though, and talk about, because we've alluded to it, but like the CGI mm-hmm. oh, work, yeah. it's not that the CGI was bad, actually. It's, it's surprisingly has held up from 2011. What my problem is, is that in the 1982 film, in part because everything is a practical effect, so you know that it is that everything you're seeing is actually something else, right? Like that it's from the real world that they've made to look like this. It really manages to to give us that sense of uncanniness and that sense of liminality that I think is at the heart of the thing that we just lose with these, even though in the 2011 film, we have even more hybrids, right? Where it's like all these body parts or the two hands fused together, where you have all the little wiggly string things that come out. Yeah. But it just, they, it wasn't as disturbing to me, even though it was much more explicitly visual, because of the fact that I think we just, we know it's not real. I don't know. I, I would say safer. I would say I would agree with all of the moments in that that it was attempting to be like otherworldly and abstract i was like it always looked like it did better in the 82 version i would yeah. say the uncanniness actually worked for the cgi and this might i don't know you don't I, I don't know if you'll even agree with this it worked when it was attempting to replicate the human aspects like i like facial things that it was doing yeah or in or specifically the hand that was taunting that one Norwegian and like I I thought that was really terrifying because that was uncanny it was attempting to replicate something human and yet it was failing so utterly in a way that was kind of disturbing and so isolated I but I do agree that on the whole when it was attempting to do like the creepiness or like about ooh we're in that alien uh, I was like come on no yeah, it was in those moments that I feel like they assumed that the scares, the horror was coming from what we were seeing. When again, I think the best moments of, of terror were the moments when we didn't know, right? When we were again left in that moment of uncertainty. And then we get to the very end of the film, right? Which I think is is terrific, where of course, you know, Lars, who's managed <laughs> to, despite not speaking the language of everyone present, survive until the end. And then, of course, he sees the dog and starts shooting it. I did think it was weird, though, after Kate Burns' Carter thing, right? Mm-hmm, How she mm-hmm. just, like, heads for the Russian station. Because, I don't know, I, I guess, again, it removed that sense of ambiguity because she is saying, I'm definitely not contaminated, so I'm okay. And I wish there'd even been maybe the hint of, like, what if she also was contaminated, you know? I just felt like by the end, we just got so black and white that it saddened me considering where the rest of the film had been headed. Yeah, I guess that's definitely fair. Do you think, I wonder, that was a setup for something? Or because I also kind of, I don't know if I read it with as much black and whiteness as you're, as you're oh, kind of interpreting it. 
in my mind, because I, again, this is probably just because I had read about it a little bit right, right. in the research process before, like, and seeing, going and seeing it, I knew it was a prequel that was directly leading into the 82 film. And so she may be going there, but she doesn't show up in the 82 film, so she didn't make it. I, well, that's, she how I, to... that's how I read it. Or she doesn't. Well, but she was headed to the Russian station, right? Which, so we never know, okay. not the American station. Okay. But I like that better. I, I think for me, it, it read more like the ending of Alien, right? Where we know that Ripley's safe and you yeah. know, not contaminated. Um, okay, that's actually fair. I guess I didn't, I guess I was just maybe reading into it a little bit. Or I think I want to read into it, right? Read projecting onto yeah. a little bit. But again, of it's just that, it's just that last sort of act yeah basically kind of changing genres on us right and so i think i'm just like maybe reading into it a little bit of the tone from the second act just because like i was a little carryover i was like willing to give to read into it but i guess that's that i guess that's like maybe they were attempting to just establish be like the thing too she's at the russian base and the the dog or something is yeah it's very it's very possible that they were hoping to be able to make a second film set in the Russia base with Kate. I no, I don't actually think I would be interested in seeing that. But I, I, I it's interesting <laughs> enough to briefly think about. Yeah, I think that speaking of like other things for it, I, I would not hope that they would. I would hope that they would kind of stop here. I don't. I know that's <laughs> not how Hollywood works, um, no. or anything. But I actually think this is a very interesting, this is like a super duper interesting collection of adaptations. They're all so specific. They all focus on very different elements. But yes, there's a, there is a kind of cohesion to them, particularly watching them in succession like we did. Thank you so much for joining us for our discussion of the things and particularly this episode on on the 2011 film. Of course, we, as always, would love to hear from you and love to hear your thoughts on the things uh, or really on on anything. Maybe you are excited by our possibility of having our next vignette beyond the Dons uh, and Shans of the Dead. Tony, if they want to get a hold of us, what do they need to do? They can reach out to us in our email, which is in the description, which is in the description of this podcast, or they can get in touch with us on our social medias, also conveniently located in that description. Be sure to leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcast from, and tell your real life friends about it. I know you have them. Yes. Just lean over yes. to them right now while you're listening to this podcast at work. Do oh, it. Oh, I like this. I like this idea that they're surrounded by people and they're just going to lean over and be like, you should listen now too. <laughs> what what is our next episode going to be on i believe we are going to be continuing our discussion of the friday the 13th franchise we so we just got done with the fifth friday the 13th so that means we're yep. on to new beginning new beginning and now jason continues living in friday the 13th part six jason lives Bum, bum, bum. And of course, this will also be a film with Tommy Jarvis. So that is exciting. So we hope that you will join us for that episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening to our nightmares. And have a spooktacular day.